Hello and welcome to Mind in Mind. My name is Jane O'Rourke. I'm a child, adolescent and family psychotherapist. Mind in Mind is a new podcast featuring interviews with the world's leading clinicians in child mental health, sharing what they know about what best helps children. Our driving force is to widen the accessibility to the wisest minds in child psychotherapy for anyone working therapeutically with children. And we're beginning with the pioneers of child psychotherapy, the founding greats who started their careers learning from the likes of Anna Freud, Donald Winnicott, Melanie Klein and John Bowlby. They've been working with children for decades and are responsible for establishing some of the first children's therapy services and developing theories and ideas which shape our clinical thinking today. Juliet Hopkins is one of these true greats. For many years, after qualifying as a child and adolescent psychotherapist, she worked at the Child Guidance Training Centre and the Tavistock Clinic. Her contribution to child psychotherapy as the niece of John Bowlby has been considerable in her own right. It's perhaps no surprise that she's been a keen advocate of attachment theory, but she's been credited with doing much to develop child psychoanalytic theory by integrating attachment theory and research on intergenerational trauma and its impact on infant mental health. This was at a time when trauma was not much talked about in child psychotherapy. Dillis Dawes, a contemporary of Juliet's, says that Juliet has widened our view of what child psychotherapy can encompass and shows that diametrically differing approaches can coexist and even nourish each other. In this interview with me, she shares her regret for feeling embarrassed about her uncle being John Bowlby when she was a trainee and also the painful rejection of him by colleagues at the Tavistock Clinic, who said his ideas were ridiculous. She says despite his theories being widely embraced by child clinicians throughout the world, he's still not properly honoured at the Tavistock or psychoanalytic organisations. Juliet's recall of a time in history is fascinating. It was when some children, like her, grew up with parents who were steeped in psychoanalysis and talking about penis envy was a completely normal part of everyday life. But perhaps her ambivalence about her own parents led her to develop important ideas about parenting and psychotherapy and led to the illuminating theory of two good mothering, which she shares here. Enjoy listening to Juliet Hopkins, one of our true greats in child psychotherapy. It might be surprising, Juliet, um, and perhaps interesting for younger therapists to know that trauma has only belatedly been acknowledged in child psychotherapy when John Bowlby attributed child psychopathology to family trauma he found himself really quite isolated he did and it wasn't just the world of child psychotherapy that was ignorant of the effects of trauma it was the nation as a whole I mean physical abuse was not generally known and talked about until the 60s and sexual abuse in the 80s and uh, it took a long time for people to be aware of how prevalent these abuses are. Mm. And what effect that has on child pathology. Yes, indeed. Mm. And now things have started to change, particularly in the last 20 years, would you say? Yes, I mean, it's in the newspapers every day, abuse. Everybody talks about abuse all the time. It was a word that really didn't exist um, when I started my professional career. 
Nobody had any idea how much suffering there was in ordinary families. So perhaps that affected how you were trained as a, as a child psychotherapist as well? Well, it certainly was a big omission. And it's very much supported Melanie Klein's way of looking to get as much as you possibly could out of the relationship that the child is making in the here and now without thought about past origins. Mm. And, and that was the training at the Tavistock that you had? I had. It was, it was very much centred on Melanie Klein's works, which people were immensely enthusiastic about at the time. And uh, I think over time people gradually realised some of the limitations that there was a belief then and a real hope that her insights into psychotic processes were going to lead to the resolution of schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we trained at that time as part of a very optimistic wave and a real belief in what we were doing. And then things shifted, and certainly in your understanding, um, I know that John Bowlby, he ran the child department at the Tavistock, didn't he? And he had a big influence on you, as well yes. as a generation well, of course, of he had a very big influence by being my uncle and by abducting me from Cambridge to come and work in his research unit, which actually, after being trained at, uh, I suppose, the health services expense to be a clinical psychologist in order to do research. I then decided I was not interested in research. I had fallen for clinical work, which was what I went on to do. But he forgave me. So tell me about how you came to work then at the Tavistock and, 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 what, and what the influence of John Bowlby was on, on you. Well, it was, of course, because Originally, he brought me to do the psychology training, and then I ran away to America for two years and was at the Yale Child Study Center, where the psychoanalytic orientation was central, but it was very much Anna Freud and not Melanie Klein. And I could see that both sides had a lot to say. Um, Melanie Klein about the present, the here and now, and how much inevitably the current relationship influences what people have to say and how they communicate. And Anna Freud on the importance of the family and of the past and of the nature of the defences. So they married together rather well, I thought, but there was, in fact, considerable division between the two groups at the time. And then you came back to London after, after Yale. Yes. I applied to both the Anna Freud and the Tavistock clinic to train and accepted the Tavistock because there you could disagree. There was a built-in disagreement between John Bowlby and Martha Harris who taught the um, child psychotherapy programme and they enjoyed their disagreements and their discussions and it was a very different feeling from the one at the Anna Freud. And Bowlby took a real interest in you and encouraged you what was your relationship like with him? Well, I think it could have been much warmer, but I rather ran away. I was, I think, embarrassed about the fact that he was my uncle and that I so much liked and agreed with his work. And I think the reason I did was because we had both been to Cambridge and both had studied science and 
evolution was central to our thinking and so I was able to enjoy and assimilate what he was working on and his attempt to make, um, as Freud had intended, psychoanalysis as a science. Um, so I was behind him but I was embarrassed about kind of waving the flag and I was sorry that I didn't actually. Um, in retrospect, um, I kept a distance and wanted to be like all the other students rather than have a special relationship. It's understandable that you mm -hmm. that you did that, but you wish that you perhaps had no. worked more closely with him. Yes, and I wish I'd taken the opportunity certainly later on to discuss cases with him, which I think he would have enjoyed because he, he loved supervising and um, he supervised people working with adults, but I don't know that he ever had any individual people pursuing him about work with children. Mm. I know that he quoted your work with um, a little girl called Sylvia, who you call Sylvia in one of your papers, who was, yeah. and she she was really able to be helped by your willingness to reconstruct some of the traumatic events and what, what you described as to recall and share what she already knew but was not supposed to know. And I think that gave him inspiration for a paper of his. Well, I think it confirmed what he already knew and was writing a paper on, because there are a lot of other clinical examples in it. But this was a little girl who had been physically and sexually abused by her father who died, and the whole thing was... a. Uh, hushed up secret and in fact she already knew about him and his death and of course she had memories about abuse which um, she enacted in terms of attacks on her by monsters rather than recollecting what had actually happened but it was very helpful to her to rediscover some memories about what had occurred. Although John Bowlby led the Child and Family Service at the Tavistock, he was really met with quite a lot of resistance from those therapists who believed more in the Kleinian model, as you, as you were saying. And it led him to say that I have been a stranger in my own department. That must have been quite difficult to see, his estrangement from his own department, do you? Yes, I think as a student I wasn't really aware. I guess he was talking about estrangement from the other staff. Um, Yes, I mean, it's difficult to go back to the 1950s, but at the time that he his first produced his work about the nature of the child's tie, comparison of man with animals was not acceptable to a great many people. I mean, the great fact of evolution had not been widely accepted, and some of his ideas were just improbable and ridiculously shocking. Only mildly shocking, but uh, how could he compare babies to birds? This was really quite original thinking that took an awful lot of time for people to be able to take on board and digest and start changing their practice or, or their theoretical models. And it met with quite a lot of resistance. It did. It came naturally to him because he'd always been interested in, in natural history. And so he liked the work of people called the ethologists was the name for their new science about the study of animals in their natural environment because he'd always watched birds in their natural environment and so he really enjoyed the 
um, books of Lorenz and Tinbergen and met these people and then Robert Hind at Cambridge. But um, certainly his dependence on animal studies was one thing which contributed to alienation from psychoanalysts in some instances, yes. And of course some psychoanalysts still say attachment theory is not psychoanalysis and it's not, shouldn't be a part of psychoanalysis. Well, it's very strange because to me it's about the origin of our defences and was what Mary Ainsworth's research was about. And um, I'm not quite sure why it isn't psychoanalysis. It isn't derived from the study of patients on the couch, that's for sure. It's derived from the study of babies and it's based on observation. So really it does lie at the heart of psychoanalysis in, in your opinion? Yes, and this, the variable that he introduced from safety and security to fear and danger is central, I guess, to our thinking. And at the time that I started the child training, the idea was to keep the level of the child's anxiety high to motivate them towards change whereas he brought in another side of the child needing to, to feel secure. But of course there are problems when the child's security is linked to their defences. The defences are what are helping them to manage. And, uh, well, that's the whole issue about how to do child psychotherapy. So there's a different technical points that you're making there. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious about John Bowlby's legacy, I know it's something that you've really been involved in, um, mm -hmm. in terms of its integration, use throughout the world, and its acceptance. And of course, he's now known, I mean, he's, fam he's famous for his, his attachment theory, and, and it's been taken up by others and uh, applied in different ways. But do you think he is given the credit at the Tavistock that he is due? I've never been especially honoured at the Tavistock or by the Institute of Psychoanalysis, respected but not one of their favoured or most admired people and quite often inadvertently left off lists of distinguished past members and so forth. Yeah, and he was felt to be outside the psychoanalytic fold, a man with some interesting original ideas but not central to psychoanalysis, as he wanted to be. And that was sort of quite disappointing that that is still happening in this day and age. Well, I d I'm not disappointed about the general acceptance of attachment thinking, which I think is very widely disseminated in the child guidance clinics throughout the nation. So you do hear some rather strange versions of it from time to time. I'm interested. How, how did you position yourself while this opposition at the time to his attachment theory was going on? Did it lead you to feeling alienated? No, the opposition was between my uncle and the Institute of Psychoanalysis. And, you know, as I said, he, he could enjoy disagreements with Matty Harris in the Tavistock, and they, but then they'd be disagreeing about particular clinical cases, and they agreed about a lot of them as well. Mm -hmm. So 
It was all quite amiable. I wasn't really exposed to conflict or I bypassed it. I'm good at bypassing conflict. I think social action was quite a, an important part of your childhood. Your mother was Evelyn Phelps Brown, who helped start the pre-play groups association. And your father was an influential economist, Professor Henry Phelps Brown, who wrote about economic and social responsibility about the importance of equality was mm. his last book, yes. Mm. So social action was quite a big part of your childhood and perhaps influenced you taking on the career well, you did in the end, did it? It might have been, except my father never talked about work at all at home. And um, I mean, my mother was very important in getting me into this field because um, she was in analysis with Joan Rivier when I was a child. In fact, I believe that inside her womb I lay on Joan Rivier's couch. Um, and I've even discovered that my uncle John was in analysis with Joan Rivier at the same time as my mother. Um, but those sorts of things happened more often in those days. Wouldn't be allowed now, would it? It wouldn't be allowed. For a brother and sister to know. be the same you, you don't know what goes on, um, but certainly you wouldn't think of it as a number one recommendation. Then I was brought up on interpretations, and some of them I think were probably right, and some of them were rather mind blowing. And um, <laughs> can you remember so, any of them? Oh, well, penis envy was very central. And certainly I was very jealous of my brother, who was very much her favourite. So your mum used to talk about penis envy? Oh, yes. yes. Oh, yes. And, and did you relate to it at the time? Or did um, you think, what did you think of that? Well, I certainly knew about my envy of my brother. Um, and, of course, I think it was important to her that he was a boy, so, yes. Your decision to train in, in family therapy coincided with a shift in thinking about the role of parents and how influential they are in terms of infant pathology. Yes, I think we'd always known very much that what parents did mattered, but parents, what parents project hadn't been really thought about. And Selma Freiberg in America or who introduced infant parent psychotherapy, as she called it, um, was the first person to write really clearly about the way parents could shape their children in the images that they carried very often of their own parents. Before that, the great emphasis in analysis was the way children projected onto their parents and saw their parents, for example, in a paranoid light, for example. Uh, the idea of the process going in the opposite direction was not a central feature of analytic thinking. And I think, it, although it was quickly adopted in the child world, it has been much slower to catch on in the world of adults analysis. So it may all be taken for granted nowadays, but I think for a long time it was an alien idea. And so this has been 
really quite a radical shift in, in your time from when you started off your training as a child psychotherapist. And the emphasis on how parents can help or not help their children um, and what our role is as therapists is really important, isn't it? Yes, and very complicated and will go on being a subject of mm. research and discussion mm. ad infinitum. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. Enid Barlent was your training analyst. Yeah. What influence did she have on you? Oh well, she lifted me out of my depression, which was really central, and enabled me to find a husband, settle down and have some babies. And um, it all seemed very easy and natural, thanks to her interventions, I think. What was it about her as a therapist that you found so helpful? I suppose at depth there was a feeling that she cared and it mattered. And um, yeah, I had some subsequent analysis with someone whom I felt never really liked me, but it was very hard to know what's transference because the same might have been said of my mother. But I think I always felt that Enid Barlett was on my side and did like me, was fond of me even. And that was probably as helpful as any of the interpretations, which um, were very valuable too, certainly at the time. But you know, this is taking me back to the 1950s and you... <laughs> I didn't keep any notes on my analysis, which I regret. So what you're saying, if I'm right, it was the relationship, really. Yes. And her feeling of being connected to you and you connected to her. And was that something that you felt was important for you when you became a therapist too, that, that children f could feel that you, were, that you cared about them? Well, it was very easy to work with children whom you found you naturally cared about, and it's much harder to work with children you don't want to see again sometimes ever. Um, and that's where the benefit of training comes in and trying to understand what it is about the child that's made you feel like that and how you can work with that in a way that could ultimately be helpful. But um, you think that child psychotherapists have become kinder? Were they not so kind when you started off? Well, it was this need to keep anxiety at a really high level. Um, I remember the first um, session with a 10-year-old boy who was referred for leaving suicide notes around and who was very withdrawn and frightened and shy. And I didn't meet him at all during the assessment phase, so he came to his first session actually without his parents and I led him into the room and all I was meant to say was these are the toys for you to use when you come here and we shall meet, I think it was four times a week at this particular time. And uh, so I didn't help him take his coat off or put his satchel down or... Um, I stuck to the regime that Perhaps I over-interpreted it probably as being stricter than it was, and I may be exaggerating it now, but we never smiled at children. People do now. I think sometimes 
before I retired, some of the trainees were going maybe too far in the other direction of making great friends of their patients so that the children were really very shocked when they heard there was a, going to be an end to the therapy one day. I know that you, um, quite unusually for a psychoanalyst, also took training in family therapy. Well, it was unusual then. Um, my uncle had opened the door to family therapy and is famous for having written one of the first family therapy papers, though I'm not sure then if I actually knew about it. But I had realised increasingly how important families were in determining symptoms, which I guess we knew, but about the importance of family communication, I think, and um, the great benefit there could be in sharing family concerns and anxieties all together before actually starting individual therapy for a child who might well need it for mm. himself. Mm. Um, but a lot could be gained from all meeting together. And so I decided I would like to train an, as a family therapist and John Bing Hall was the only analytically oriented family therapist in the Tavistock Clinic at that time. And I was lucky enough to join his group and he was my supervisor. So I learned to be viewed through the one-way vision screen and all of that. Quite different from the way we train child psychotherapists. Mm -hmm. People might not know about these screens. Would you would you explain? Well, how the, the one-way screen. Mm -hmm. Well, the student interviews the family on one side of the screen, um, and the screen is a mirror from the point of view of the family. But on the other side of the, what appears to be a mirror is the supervisor and maybe observing students who watch what happens and can talk about it in hushed tones. Um, and use their understanding to give to the student either. Sometimes it can be done through a bug in the ear during the session, or they can call a halt and there can be an exchange of discussion. And the family is always introduced to the people behind the screen and knows that they're there if they want to meet them. It's not a, a secretive or furtive operation, mm. but it uh, can be a very helpful way of getting additional insights. And certainly some child therapy trainings in America use um, rec recorded um, sessions for viewers and supervision. I'm quite interested in your work on children who've been adopted and your paper, um, Overcoming a Child's Resistance, I think is one of the best insights into the minds of adopted children I've ever read. You wrote that the most crucial contribution to the child's willingness to risk further attachments is probably the therapist's capacity to contain all the negative emotions of fright without solution, as these are gradually externalised. I thought that was really an important part of the work with children who've been really traumatised as therapists we must know about. Yes, the children are containing so much horrific experience which they don't allow themselves to know about, but they allow you to know about it by doing some of these things to you, by treating you with contempt, 
by humiliating you in front of colleagues by their bad behaviour and generally um, attacking you in a variety of extremely irritating, annoying and sometimes painful ways in which they convey to you just what they are having to hold inside themselves. And uh, yes, I forget what the quote was. I probably put it much better than I can now. But um, well, you also say in that paper, which I think is quite crucial um, and an interesting technical point, you say that um, new attachments can begin even without the need to reconstruct the trauma or consciously to revisit the past? Yes. Well, when I started out in this field, I began with Freud's idea that it's important to remember the past, otherwise you repeat it. And I discovered through experience and through the experience of others, which has been widely written about, that facts of containing negative emotions is often sufficient to start a change at least. And uh, in this case with this boy, who was one of the ones I never wanted to see again at certain moments in his therapy, um, it was essential to tolerate being mistreated in order to allow him to fully express something about what he was carrying. Can you say more about this tolerating being mistreated? What that does for a child, how that helps a child? It gives words to experiences like humiliation, shame, pain, hurting. Um, it makes the child aware that he wants to do these things, which is a step towards um, thinking about them. I wonder whether, mm -hmm. you know, well, in the process of containing what you're, you're, what you're given is something quite raw. And yes. being able to contain it, you are then being able to sort of it's make it, it into something, something else. that can be thought about, about because it's put into words. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think you put it very well. That's certainly a very large component of it. Yeah. Something else that I read that really um, resonated for me, I know that a lot of parents are worried about the relationship between a therapist and a child yeah. and the therapist becoming more important to the child yeah. than, than they are. Mm -hmm. and, and you said that actually it should be some small comfort for a child's parent to know or carer to know that when a therapist develops a new capacity for attachment in their child, it's not because the therapist is more significant to the child than they are, but the reverse. And you said that therapists can be tested and risks can be taken because there's much less at stake. Mm -hmm. And they provide a trial ground where new developments can be explored before they are taken safely home. I thought that was very nicely put. So it makes a very nice quote. Mm. But um, and it's certainly true that the therapist is always much less important than the parents and you can risk driving them away or long for them to want to drive you away, long for them to terminate the therapy mm. and get rid of you in a way that they wouldn't dare, by and large, usually with their parents. Mm. Yeah.
And I think it's this being this testing ground that, mm -hmm. that I think can be very helpful for children, can't it? That they can test out on you as a therapist. Yes, and it's time limited, which makes it tolerable for the therapist. Mm -hmm. 50 minutes can seem an eternity sometimes, but it, it isn't, it does end. It's interesting, you've mentioned this a few times about the difficulty of actually bearing um, some of these very disturbed children. It really is a very, very hard task, isn't it, for, for therapists to be able to do that, to be able to bear with the difficulties of these children, if there's going to be a change. Yes, I think it is, and it's why we need very good training and analysis and support and aren't expected to do um, therapeutic work with large numbers of these children at the same time. We need, we need balanced caseloads. Mm. And do you think that perhaps is not happening so much these days? I don't know what's happening now, but I know some people specialise in this area, but I think it's very often combined with consultation to agencies and parents and not mm -hmm. simply working with children. Mm -hmm. um, as we've become more knowledgeable about the body mm -hmm. and uh, particularly about the influence of neurobiology on mm -hmm. our thinking, has that also had an influence on, on your thinking about um, children who've been traumatised as well? I think this, the simple answer is no, not really. I mean, I'm very glad that the problem is being tackled from another angle. But I have a friend who specialises in all this knowledge. And I asked her in what way it was actually helpful clinically. And she thought for a long time and surprised herself by only coming up with one suggestion, which was that where the clients are mature enough, you know, teenagers or whatever, it's helpful to them to know um, that there's a real reason that the brain is involved. But um, I rather go along with, I think, a professor of um, neurobiology who said that there's as much direct relevance between what happens in a therapy session and neurobiology as between what happens in a telephone call and what's going on in the telephone wires. And so, although I did do um, physiology and pathology as part of my original degree, I've never really found a way of looking at it that has changed a clinical approach in any way. So I hope one day they're going to come up with real therapeutic changes. Mm. I found sometimes it can be helpful increasing levels of empathy from teachers, maybe even parents when you explain yes, indeed. what's happening neurobiologically. Yes, I guess that's the same as what my friend was saying. Mm. Yes that people are glad to hear it's not just in the mind. Mm. Mm. That a child's not just but being naughty. I think naughty. because I came into this field through the physical, I've always assumed that if any change took place, it was naturally happening in the brain. Otherwise, it wouldn't be happening. So I expect a front for me.
So this concept of too good mothering, um, that the mother is trying to spare baby's frustration and be the baby's sole source of goodness is what, how you described mm -hmm. it. Is this something that's still relevant today? Well, I imagine so. I think human nature goes on the same. And, um, yeah. And mothers enjoy being, if not the sole source of goodness, the, perhaps the more important source of goodness. Um, I think everything at the moment is about women's rivalry with men in the media, whereas women have the immense privilege of having babies. And maybe one day the envy will shift in the other direction. There's a big pressure on mothers to be perfect though, isn't there? And maybe this could be contributing to mothers wanting to be um, perfect mothers and, and to have this perfectly aligned, harmonious relationship with their babies, which you say isn't helpful entirely. Well, it's what we would all enjoy, isn't it? And yes, I mean, it's consoling to mothers and why they like the paper to realise that when a baby is furious because you've decided it's time he should be weaned from his uh, dummy or something like that and you've taken it away, um, actually he may be benefiting from being able to express his rage and to know that your mind is different from his mind, you don't think he needs it anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Winnicott described the good enough mother. Is that what we're talking about here as well? Yes, the, the good enough mother is what Winnicott uh, supported. The one who allows various failings, mm -hmm. if you call, like to call it that, anyhow. Mm -hmm. The child learns to cope rather than is totally gratified. And I think that's where the attachment literature tends to uh, appear to fall into the trap of recommending nothing but harmony to make sure of a secure attachment. So there's something in the frustration of the relationship that builds capacity mm. in a child that helps them discover how to put things right. Yes. 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 And don't leave it all to mother. And this built on, I think, on Winnicott's ideas about the importance of allowing children to be appropriately frustrated. And, and I wondered, as your supervisor, I think you were the only child psychotherapist, weren't you, supervised by Winnicott, about his influence on you, what, what it was like uh -huh. um, being in supervision with with Donald Winnicott? Yes, I think I was the only one. I never heard of anybody else, and the only one because the Tavistock approved their particular supervisors who were Kleinian, and the Anna Freud chose theirs, who had all done the Anna Freud training, as there was this significant division. Um, I think Winnicott supervised analysts who may be trained as child analysts but not child psychotherapists. And what was it like? Well, he saw me at lunchtime and he sat with his eyes closed and while well, he drank a cup of coffee after lunch 
and that made me very uncomfortable because I felt he would really have liked a nap. He was well into his 70s then. And in fact, much later, I learned that he liked to supervise with his eyes shut. This was his way of visualizing what was going on between the student and the child. So I needn't have worried so much that he was wanting to sleep. And uh, he did reveal that he always had been listening, uh, but he never gave advice and he never told me what to say. And in those ways, as a beginning psychotherapist, I was really quite disappointed. He would think about what was going on and possible ways, alternative ways of looking at it, and leave it to me as to what I would say or do about it. And uh, no help at all with practical things like, you know, the child taking their clothes off in the session or um, peeing on the floor. Um, no, no. And the assumption was that if I understood what it was about, I would find a way. So there wasn't a chance of being too, of too good supervising going on? No, I certainly couldn't go away and be a Winnicott. No. no. An appropriate level of frustration. Was there or perhaps <laughs> too much frustration on your part? Yes. I don't know how aware he was that he was frustrating in that respect. But in retrospect, what do you think you gained from that experience of being with him? Certainly an encouragement to think for myself, a belief that I would find a way even if I couldn't immediately come to one, and the feeling that sometimes even the experts don't know, because I think I got the message sometimes that he didn't know what he would have done. So there might have been some comfort in that. Yes. Yes. One of your training cases, I think, was Paddy, who mm-hmm. um, who couldn't play, mm-hmm. and and you found yourself in the room trying to remember your training and the interpretations that you'd been taught how to give, and and you just found yourself not being able to give an interpretation. And I know Winnicott's thinking about the capacity to play. Um, and that interpretations are just not useful um, and, and can cause confusion if, if a child is not being able to, is not at that stage of being able to take it in. Right, I think he was very helpful there in allowing me to see that actually giving names to feelings was a form of interpretation as it provides a, a symbolic meaning, if you like. Um, and so, I felt a bit a little disappointed, I think, that all I had to do was to be with a very backward child and name what he felt and what he was doing. But it did have very beneficial effects and I could see that it was a very important stage and that simply providing um, a meaning for random acts and powerful feelings, quite a helpful and meaningful thing to do. Is that what we would call marking as well, that you, you were marking his feelings, you were tracking his feelings? And his yes, day. I don't know where that name, the term marking comes in, I think it was around at the time, but I think it is an example of it, isn't it? So this is working at a very simple level. 
Yes. It That's obviously right. had quite a powerful effect on Paddy. Yes, I think because his parents had never done it. And whereas it seems so natural to many parents just to talk to their babies and young children about what they're doing and what they're feeling, and some don't. Paddy's mother, you wrote about having had having been depressed yes. when Paddy was a baby. Mm. And, and I'm interested in... Perhaps was there a connection with Winnicott's interest in 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 the effect this had on him because his own mother, Winnicott's mother, mm -hmm. had also suffered from depression. Yes, of course. I didn't learn that until very much later when it was written about. Um, so no doubt it did. I mean, he was interested in how depression affected um, affected children parental depression, but I don't remember him speculating about it at all. Did they keep in touch with you or, or not? Um... Well, no, um, because in those days we would never have dared to say anything like, um, and I'd be pleased to hear from yeah. you any time. Yeah, yeah. No. No. Um, so they were, were not encouraged. The idea was that you kind of warn the end, amen. Yeah, yeah. Um, so did you ever get to hear about what had happened to any of your cases? Um, yeah, well, one came back in her 40s and wanted her notes, which the Tavistock had destroyed. Um, but anyhow, she was pleased to see me. Um, Gosh. She was one of my training cases. Yeah. And... The boy that I mentioned mm. to you, whom I gave such a bad start to, I mm. discovered recently has become a poet, and I emailed him, because there was an email, and mm. um, told him my regrets about his early mm. therapy, and uh, said I'd be happy to meet with him if he'd ever like mm. to, and he responded enthusiastically that he would like to, but he never has. Mm -hmm. Well, that was only six months ago, but yeah. um, I don't think mm -hmm. he will. I think it was enough to know that he was remembered yeah, and that so I had dis and I discovered that he was a successful poet. Oh, that's lovely. And I think that would gratify him yeah. after I'd only seen the rather miserable depressed boy. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you need a certain level of depression to be a poet as well. Yes, oh yes. Um, I felt sure they were his poems when I read the volume. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'm interested in your work um, in infant mental health. Um, you set up a workshop um, with Dennis mm -hmm. Dawes, mm -hmm. uh, the infant mental health workshop there, a, a number of years ago, and it has become central to child psychotherapy training. What did you hope to achieve when you set that up with Dillis? Well, I think we were aware that problems begin at the beginning and that babies are very important to think about and actually to intervene on behalf of. Um, and there wasn't any infant parent psychotherapy at that time, at least not in this country. And we wanted people to be alert to the needs of babies. And indeed, since then, they have immensely become so, I think, or at least um, in parts of Britain now. 
and there is an Association for Infant Mental Health, which is a term which nobody would ever have thought of. And I think there was a general belief that until you can remember your past, what happened to you doesn't really matter. And still an idea that's alive in parts of the population today. Oh, he doesn't remember, it can't have mattered. Mm. What do you think that the, the workshop has achieved in, in, in the training? The, what we set up was a course, which was a half a day a week, when people came from um, outside the Tavistock to have um, two seminars. And subsequently, I think there was a clinical workshop that was developed. And I don't, that's been since I left the training, or not, that's not right. I overlapped for a while with that, but it was never um, a part of it. And I mean, it, it's a, lo a logical development from infant observation of babies in their own homes to thinking about babies who need special care protection or have parents who need help with them. So I think it's a great development of the profession to the youngest ages. And uh, yes, we'd be really shocked if we went back to how things were in the 1950s and saw how very limited and restricted interventions were. Could you tell me more about that? What, what, what were those interventions in those days? How different was it? Well, there was hardly, hardly any, anywhere you could have an intervention to start with. I mean, the mental health services for, for children, I think, were very, very scanty. The first child guidance clinic was in the 1930s and based on the American model, which happened to be psychoanalytic. But then, of course, it all went into abeyance during the war and started up again afterwards. Um, but, you know, I'm ignorant. I know John Bowlby went and talked at a mother and baby discussion group, which maybe he even started, for all I know, at a local baby clinic. So there were baby clinics where people could no doubt go and, and talk with nurses about problems. But I don't think the nurses would have had any particular training in mm. emotional difficulties. If you were to meet the Juliet of 50 years ago, what advice would you give her now? <laughs> I would tell her that she's extremely privileged. She's chosen the right profession, is going to be very interesting and she's going to get a great deal out of it, and she's a very lucky person. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you very much for your time, Juliet. Well, thank you for raising some very interesting issues. Thank you. Thank you very much to Juliet Hopkins for talking with me. Each week, we're bringing you leading innovators and thinkers, sharing their understanding of child and family life. At mindinmind.org.uk, you'll find more interviews and guest bloggers writing about the latest research and innovation to give depth of thinking to topical issues in child and family mental health. Go to mindinmind.org.uk.